0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's Western Germany that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it is full of narrations and events that represent European history like a microcosm. This episode will be entirely devoted to the rise of Christianity in Cologne during the Frankish Merovingian period. So, the period from the 6th to the 8th century. On one hand, we can see this most clearly, of course, in the numerous church buildings that were built during this period, some of which still characterize the cityscape today. And we can also link this rise to a single person who can stand as a representative of this development during this time. Bishop Cunibert of Cologne, who lived from about 600 to 664. As bishop of Cologne, Cunibert, who came from the Frankish nobility, was for over 40 years much more than just a clergyman who read mass in church in Cologne on Sundays. He would become the first political bishop of Cologne to be significantly active at the Frankish imperial level. As an advisor to kings, a jurist, and even part-time region of the Eastern Frankish Empire, he will have an amazing career. We will start with Kunibert's story from the 7th century, right after the random fact of this episode. Therefore the random fact about Cologne for this episode. Cologne presents itself nowadays as a modern city of the 21st century, with a 2000 year old history. But similar to the former Reibekuchen, the potato pancake stall at the Cologne train station, there is another spectacle in the city that you would really Only expect to see in the countryside. These are the flocks of sheep along the Rhine. These flocks of sheep grazing on the grass covered banks of the Rhine are true saviors of our city. They ensure that areas designated for flooding in times of high water are also capable of absorbing the water masses and allowing them to seep away. Too much plant growth of trees and bushes on the banks could lead to sealing and not allow the water to percolate. Sheep prefer to eat away these young plants and thus provide flood protection for the city. Well, if Cologne is such a modern city, why don't machines or vehicles equipped to do this? Well, it has been proven that no machine in the world can do this work as thoroughly as a sheep. And more environmentally friendly, it is without the use of large internal combustion engines to boot. Of course, using sheep for flood control is not something that is unique to Cologne. Coastal areas with dikes and other river basins all over the world make use of it. It is only in a city of millions like Cologne that such a thing is more noticeable. I remember myself once sunbathing on the Rhine with some friends after school. I dozed off and when I woke up a sheep was nibbling at my pants. I wonder to this day who was more frightened me or the sheep when we stared in each other’s eyes. Well, on to the intro. Before we get into the vita of the great and important Bishop Cunibert, we must venture a brief look at the imperial level. And no, this time of course no longer the Roman but the Frankish empires met. I had already said it before. The Merovingian dynasty, which Clodwig founded around the year 500, ruled over very large parts of what is now France, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg and Western Germany. All this can be easily observed on a map, but the composition of the Frankish Empire was extremely complicated. One element that complicated things was, among others, the law of succession. The law of succession basically had a noble goal. If the king died, all his male descendants were to be provided for equally, so the rule of the empire was to be divided up among his sons. On paper this does not sound bad, but the question that arises, what does equal division exactly mean? And it was precisely over this that the Merovingian heirs often quarrelled vehemently with each other and invade each other's territories by war. Thus, in the 6th and 7th century, the Frankish Empire split up again and again followed by phases where one heir succeeded in reuniting the entire Frankish Empire under his sole rule. Of course, most of his brothers and their families died a death before that. Mostly, not a natural one. For example, in the year 558, the I, the youngest son of clotwig succeeded in uniting all parts of the Frankish Empire under his rule, even if only briefly, because he died three years later and the Frankish Empire was divided again. This triggered a new, fratricidal war among his sons and their respective families. And it is precisely into this time of decades-long, fratricidal wars that Kunibert is born around the year 600. Here in the eastern part of the Frankish Empire, Two brothers of the Merovingians are once again fighting for power. On the one hand, and attention, again wonderful beautiful Merovingian names follow, was Toidebert II. Toidebert ruled over the eastern part of the empire, which was called Austrasia. Borrowed from Latin, Austrasia really simply means land to the east. It included territories on both sides of the Rhine, as well as northeastern Gaul, including our city of Cologne, and Aachen, Trier, the Lorraine region, but also areas in what is now Thuringia, the territory of the Almaty, conquered under Klotwig in what is now southwestern Germany also belong to it, and parts of what is now Bavaria. Is that all too complicated for you? Well, no problem. I will post a map of all of this in the companion post to this episode on my homepage. Link to it as always in the show notes. On the other side of this fratricidal war for power in the east of the Frankish Empire stood Teuderich II, the ruler of Burgundy. There too I gladly refer to the map I will post. Roughly speaking, his domain was in southeastern Gaul. Both brothers had previously been allies against the ruler of Neustria, the western dominion of the Frankish Empire. All of these lords or kings were descended in a direct line from Klodwig. I have never been good at designating degrees of kinship, and I don't even try. I will post a family tree for this as well in my companion post. So around 600, war broke out between the two rulers, which ended after a few years in the year 612. In the end, Teuderich. King of Burgundy can hold his ground and decides the war for himself in a battle near Zülpich. You see the small town of Zülpich, southwest of Cologne, is a popular place to fight battles, as Clodwig and Sigibert once did in the year 496 against the Alemanni. The king and brother Teudebert of Austrasia and his still very young son are captured and killed. Well, some family quarrels can sometimes really escalate. And here finally, finally, we come to the blood column in the church of St. Gerion. Just like his great-great-grandfather, if I'm correct, reading the family tree, Teuderich wanted to go to Cologne and have the people of Cologne pay homage to him as the new king just outside the city walls of Cologne in front of the church of St. Gerion. The church of St. Gerion had since... Clodwig served as the king's residence for some time now. Teuderich's advisers warned him that he should rather not enter the church. They feared too much the judgment of the blood column. But Teuderich brushed such statements aside as silly superstition. And who could blame him for that? He celebrated his victory over his brother with a high mass in the church. But as he passed the blood column inside the magnificent oval central building as he was exiting, Teuterich stopped and he gazed at the column on which, according to legend, the blood of the martyr Geryon had been splattered some 300 years earlier. Actually as an early Frankish medieval ruler, he could possibly not really read, but perhaps he still understood what the inscription on the column said hic pridem fusus idem at lapidem sidem me male punit idem. Translated from Latin, it means, Believe me, blood was shed here long ago on this stone. If I act evil, it punishes. Suddenly horror was written on Teuderis' face. The king blanched and then to the horror of all present. He fell dead after a loud cry on his part. When the body of the dead king was picked up, someone noticed that a small stab wound was visible, but no one could explain it. Because actually the victorious king was still wearing his armor, a dagger could never have pierced through the armor, nor had any perpetrator been seen who could have wielded that blade in that moment. Really creepy. Okay, maybe you are just realizing that I'm pulling your leg a little bit, but this is the legend of the blood column. It wasn't too long ago that St. Geryon's communion children were warned not to enter the church until after a confession to the priests. Superstition or not, but when I went to St. Gerion's church to take photos for this companion post, I was naturally queasy. No one who can say that about themselves is free from sin. But since I'm speaking to you here and recording this podcast episode, you can guess that I survived the encounter with the blood column just fine. What is certain, however, is that the historically documented Teuderich did not have long to live. He died the following year in 613 and survived his murdered brother only for one year. He became only 25 years old. Now, Teuderich's young sons were hunted down. Two of his four sons were killed by being hurled against a stone wall. A third was probably spared, and the fourth managed to escape. Pooh! So that's a short introduction, but what does this have to do with Bishop Kunibert? The young Kunibert will have experienced all this very closely. Cunibet probably came from the Frankish nobility around Trier and was educated at the royal court of King Teudebert in Metz in today's Lorraine. Thereby he will also have taken the career path as a clergyman in the vicinity of Trier. The fact that men from the Frankish nobility entered the clerical professions was something quite new in this period. Until then the personnel of the clerical ruling class of the Frankish empire were almost exclusively filled by Gallo-Romans, that is, the old established provincial population from still Roman times or, but well, better said, who were descendants from the people of that time. But more and more the Franks merged with the majority of the Gallo-Roman population. The adoption of Roman Catholic Christianity by the Frankish elite about a 100 years earlier had only accelerated this development. The fact that Frankish men now also became bishops, is part of this. We know, for example, that it was not until the year 590, so about 150 years after the conquest of Cologne by the Franks, that a bishop with Frankish roots became head of the bishopric of Cologne, and not as before, a Gallo Roman. As a priest, Cunibet is able to read and write, unlike the largely illiterate Frankish ruling class. In securing their rule after the conquest of formerly Roman territories, the Franks had relied on the still existing bishopric structures of the Roman Christian Church, which had already taken over numerous state tasks under Roman rule and were well-networked politically among themselves but also in regional terms. The Christian bishops and clergymen were therefore sought-after officials at the royal courts of the Merovingians from the very beginning. Thus, Kunibert will also have been at the service of his king, Toydebert, in Metz. His patron from his early days lost his life in the year 612, as you learned now, but this did nothing to stop Kunibert's career. On the contrary, the constant battles for the rule of the individual Frankish kingdoms let the local nobility and clergy in the towns, villages and hamlets become more and more powerful and important. From the year 613, the Merovingian King Clothar II once again ruled a completely unified Frankish kingdom. And he also actively supports the young priest Cunibert. He met Cunibert the tutor of his own son, Dagobert, who was to rule the entire Frankish Empire from the year 631. One always likes to have such a friend, I guess. One of Cunibert's career stations before becoming bishop in Cologne may well have been a clerical leadership position in the city of Trier. The long-defunct former Roman imperial residence, especially compared now to Cologne, continued to be an important city nevertheless in the eastern part of the Frankish Empire. Here, Cunibert served as Archdiacon. I will now refrain from explaining the complex offices and titles of the early Christian church. Let's just leave it at that, that Cunibert was... Quasi the deputy of the Bishop of Trier. You notice maybe that I don't really list the years. Well, that's just it again. The historical sources in the early middle ages are very rare. We only know that it must have happened before the year 625. We don't even know the date of Kunibert's birth. Probably he must have been born right around the year 600. And yes, that means in fact that he was trained as a child towards a career in the church. Not unusual in the Middle Ages. Cunibet must not have done his job badly. King Clotar and his son Dagobert were visibly taken with him. It so happens that with their royal support, he is appointed bishop of Cologne in the 620s. He would certainly not have been older than 30 at that time. When exactly he is appointed as bishop of Cologne we well unfortunately do not really know but once appointed bishop of Cologne he was to guide the fortunes of Cologne and the Cologne diocese for over 40 years in a time when kings often died before they reached the age of 30 that is a perceived eternity but in the year 626 we have historical evidence that Cunibert is the bishop of Cologne, and that he participate in a synod in Clichy near Paris. In the year 630, it is handed down that he again took part in a synod in Rams. A synod, and I hope I pronounce this word correctly in English, was a meeting of bishops, in both cases of Frankish bishops. Especially in these times, however, these synods did not only talk about theological topics, As the bearer not only of spiritual, but also of ever-increasing real power, power politics within the Frankish Empire were also among the topics of the agenda at Clichy in the year 626. There, the young bishop of Cologne must have distinguished himself, for the king of the eastern part of the Frankish Empire, Dagobert, appointed him one of his advisors at his royal court. And only a few years later, in 634, he, Dagobert, also appointed Cunibet as regent for his still minor, underaged son, Sigebert. Dagobert appreciated his former educator and teacher and eventually even entrusted him with the management of his royal court. No decision, no single letter went to the king without Cunibet knowing about it beforehand. Bishop kunibert was thus one of the most powerful figures in the Frankish Empire. Here, ecclesiastical power clearly merged with state power. In an earlier episode, I told you that Klotik had his empire administered by counts. Well, this secular noble Frankish count had at least probably hardly anything to report in Cologne in this time. His actually power was completely overshadowed by that of the bishop of Cologne. In this case by Kunibert. It may be astonishing that there was such a not-exactly-defined distribution of power here. The Count in Cologne and the Bishop of Cologne were supposed to be in a relationship during the Frankish period, which was characterized by a constant alternation of competition, conflict and balance. Such imprecise power structures are characteristic for the Middle Ages and also fine to the early modern times. And please be honest. How often do you hear in the media that the state parliament does not feel responsible because this issue is dedicated at the federal level, and then you are told that it is not decided on the federal level but at the level of the European Union or even the United Nations? They in return like to play the ball back to everyone possible involved and nobody seems to be responsible. But where well, we digress. The fact that bishops gained power and influence in their cities of residence was not really a cologne phenomenon alone. Wherever cities still existed from ancient times, the well-connected ecclesiastical dignitaries with their bishops at the top knew how to achieve first spiritual and then secular power. Thus it happened that the bishops in the Frankish Empire ruled quasi-autonomously, over their cities and the surrounding countryside. So powerful did they become that the king needed them to support his rule and did not even consider it remotely wise to question this. Our Kunibet is a good example here, because the respective Frankish king knows exactly, somewhere lurks always a brother or other relative from the Merovingian dynasty who would like to push him from the throne. Let us now take a look at Kunibert's activities in Cologne, which are still clearly visible in the cityscape today. And, of course, there are also some legends about Kunibert. I find two legends quite entertaining. Let's start with the first one. The Glocke, or in English translated, well, you can't really translate it, it means pig trapping bell. Well, let's just begin with the story and maybe you get why the bell is called like that. This story is probably the best known about Kunibert. Located only 500 meters west of today's Heumarkt, the Haymarket, the Church of Saint Cecilia stood and still stands today. However, the current church building near today's Neumarkt, Cologne's largest inner city square, is from the later 12th century, which of course still makes the church building over 800 years old and no less special. The church at that time may have been much smaller. But I would like to come to the building of St. Cecilia in the next episode. So according to legend, a new bell had been forged for the church. Yes, you heard correctly. How to cast bells? The people did not know at that time yet in the Rhineland. So they hung the church bell in the building and tried to ring it. But to the astonishment of all present, it remained silent despite the ringing, no matter how hard you tried. To everyone's misfortune, the bell broke loose from the building and crashed into the marshy ground next to the church, next to the pigs who were trying to find something to eat. However, Bishop Kunibert, who happened to be passing by that day and had observed what was happening, knew what to do. He blessed the bell and, oh miracle, after a small prayer the bell rang. Another version has something to do with pigs, from which then also the name of the bell is derived. In this version, the church had burned down before, and the bell had fallen into the muddy ground and was considered lost, or they covered it up with dirt so it would not get stolen. Since it was normal to keep cattle in the cities until the modern times in Cologne, it happened that a sow digging for food in the soil came across the lost bell. This gave the bell the name Saufang, or pick-trapping bell. Here too Kunibert blessed the bell and gave it to the church of St. Cecilia. Legend or not, the Saufang bell really exists and can still be seen today in the Schnütgen Museum, a museum about Christian religious art. And this is no coincidence that it can be seen there. The Schnütgen Museum is located in the church building of St. Cecilia. Experts, however, are largely certain that the bell does not date back to the 7th century, but to the 9th century. Although this makes the bell 200 years younger, it still makes it the Bell, the oldest church bell in Germany preserved to this day. And yes, the question also occurred to me, it really does ring when you ring it. If you find the time to go visit the museum, Is really great, and wandering around in this Romanesque building is an experience of its own. In my belief, it is quite a bit overshadowed by the neighboring ethnological museum, which it shares its building entrance with. But hey, that just means for you as a passionate visitor, that it is not so overcrowded with other visitors. The second legend is based on another legend that I have already told you in passing, namely how the bones of St. Ursula were found. When Cunibert arrived in Cologne as the new Bishop of Cologne, the Church of St. Ursula already existed above the burial ground where Ursula and her 11 or 11,000 virgins had probably been buried according to legend. The church stands on a Roman burial ground and Cunibert was Frustrated by the fact that it was not really known where exactly the tomb of Saint Ursula was located, or her bones, so to speak. So he celebrated a service in the church dedicated to the martyr on the anniversary of her death to commemorate her. And to everyone's amazement, a dove flew into the church. It first settled on the bishop's head, then it flew further into a corner of the church. Aim pointed with its beak again and again to a spot on the floor. Immediately, Cunibet had the floor plate removed, and exactly there, where the dove had pointed, Cunibet found the bones of St. Ursula, which were then put into their own shrine for veneration, and are still there today. For his bishopric, Cunibet revised the legal texts during the time of King Dagobert's reign. The Merovingian law code. Lex Ribuaria represents a revision of the previous Lex Salica, which we already have talked about in a previous episode. I would like to point out here again that I'm far far away from being a legal historian, so I spare you the details. But this involvement also shows how much Cunibet as bishop of Cologne, had power also on the imperial level in the Eastern Frankish Empire of the Merovingians, and how much. Meanwhile, bishops were harnessed as officials of the empire. The Lex Ripuaria integrated the bishopric of Cologne, so the Cologne lowland and its surroundings, even more strongly and sustainably into the Frankish Empire of the Merovingians. In the city of Cologne, Cundibet primarily restructured and further expanded the church system. The churches and monasteries in the diocese flourished. Thus, he founded church north outside the city, directly in front of the old Roman city wall near the Rhine, which was dedicated to St. Clement, one of the first popes. And again, to no surprise, the building is located on a burial ground from Roman times, which continued to be used in a Merovingian time. The church immediately became Cunibet's favorite residence during his presumed 40 years in office as Bishop of Cologne. We will also come to this church building and other church buildings that Kunibert founded next time. From here, Kunibert also coordinated Christian missionary efforts to neighboring pagan regions that were not yet or at least not completely controlled by the Frankish Empire. First and foremost, Frisians on the North Sea coast and the Saxons, who had attacked Deutsch just a few decades earlier and were now the Franks direct neighbors in the Rhineland. And we do not have to forget that still in Cologne, Christianity was, well, probably the majority religion in the town, but not totally. So we can assume that Cuneut also did a great part in Cologne in missionary work. It is in the church of St. Clement in what is now the northern part of Cologne's old town, but that time still before the Roman city wall, that Cunibert is buried after his death in the year six hundred sixty-four. By the 9th century at the latest, the church and the associated monastery bear his name. So, so its name is now Saint Cunibert and not Saint Clement anymore. The fact that Cunibert was later canonized due to his miraculous deeds should not surprise anyone. What does that mean in conclusion? Cunibert was certainly one of the most important bishops of Cologne, and after Severin, the second bishop about whom we know something more than just his name. We can call Cunibert quasi the first political bishop of Cologne, whose influence also had weight outside of Cologne, both in spiritual and especially in secular affairs, as head of the royal court of the Frankish King Dagobert. The power of a bishop Cunibet stands for development which will increase in its form in the near future. Although we only know the names of the next bishops of Cologne, such as Botandus, Stephanus, Gisu, Anno or Faramundus, due to the lack or even loss of historical sources, it is not until the time of Charlemagne in the late 8th century that the bishops of Cologne regained their profile, biography and character for us. For the decline of royal power in the Frankish Empire continued to gather pace under the Merovingians. Due to the constant feuds within the Merovingian dynasty, the Merovingian kings lost more and more power through their divisions and internal wars and conflicts. The patron of Cunibet, King Dagobert I, was himself one of the last outstanding Merovingian rulers. The empire united under Dagobert continued to decay under his weak heirs and their heirs. Beneficiaries of this development were, as already mentioned, the regional rulers like landed gentry and the bishops, like our bishop Cunibet for Cologne and the lower Rhine after Dagobert died in 639, so 25 years before Cunibet himself would die. This ensures for Cologne in particular that the fate of the city and consequently its history, would be shaped for centuries by the church, or more precisely, the bishop's rule. Similar things took place at the top of the empire. Weak Merovingian kings came and went, but someone still had to ensure the order of the empire. Thus, in the background, the families of the high officials at the royal courts of the Merovingians came more and more to power. The so-called mayors of the palace or majordomo. So much so that at the end of this development, those majordomos could make the Merovingian kings dance like their puppets as string pullers. Only already times as in in front. We will talk about it another time when we get there. Let's leave it for today. I hope I have told you the life of Kunibert in the best possible way. The early middle ages is not only poor in sources, it is unfortunately often overlooked, yet it is such an interesting epoch from which the final constellation of Europe will ultimately develop. With Bishop Cunibet, however, Cologne also begins to gain importance for the Frankish Empire. In the long run, this leads to the fact that for centuries, the fate of the city of Cologne is closely connected with the rule of the bishops, and later archbishops of Cologne. Next time, we will stay in Cologne. Episcopal rule gradually but steadily establishes itself in the East Frankish city. This finds expression in the numerous foundations of church buildings and monasteries in the Merovingian period, an example from the 6th to the 8th century in Cologne. kunibert himself is a promoter of church and clerical buildings in a city and gives them their first flourishing. Now churches in the middle ages are not mere places of just worship in this period as they are today founded by bishops, kings or endowed by rich citizens. They are more than that. Especially churches and monasteries develop into the commercial economic enterprises of their time. They become schools the only places in Christian Europe where the knowledge of antiquity is kept, and in general where something that still can remotely be called medicine and education is practiced. Finally, churches and especially monasteries and clerical convents develop into real centers of power in the early medieval world, and where to remain so for a long time in the Rhineland, even until the time of Napoleon and he only appears at the end of the 18th century, as you can see. This is a topic we will have to deal with, so we will do that in the next episode. So long. Thank you very much for listening. Recommend me further, and please follow me on my social media platforms. It is so frustrating that all those social media platforms nowadays decrease your reach to their fans because they just want you to pay money. And I'm just a small podcast. I cannot afford to put hundreds of euros or dollars into it. I can't. So I hope you pay a visit to my social media accounts. Links to them always in the show notes. Thank you for listening. And till next time, auf Wiedersehen.